Let's pray. Righteous Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather in your name. We can gather here to worship you because of what you've done for us, because of the sacrifice that you made on the cross, coming to this world, dying for our sins. We thank you for your written word that is available to us that we can understand and read. Pray that you direct us this morning as we open it, especially Brother Mal as he preaches from it. May you give him power and direct him, direct his words and his thoughts that the truth could be proclaimed and we could be strengthened spiritually by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Greetings in Jesus' name and welcome to each one this morning. It's good to be here in God's house. I am thoroughly enjoying our Sunday school study through Matthew. Maybe that's what prompted this, this message, this text, this title. A kingdom lifestyle. Now, just for context, let me just uh, clarify this. We certainly, I think most of us are aware we're living in, we, we're, we're part of, we see two kingdoms in our world. There's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan or the kingdoms of the world. I'm focusing on the kingdom of heaven lifestyle. You know, Jesus came to live on the earth for 30-some years to usher in his kingdom. And it's often referred to as the kingdom of heaven in scripture as he uses it. You know, life in God's kingdom means ultimate happiness and fulfillment in God. There's a psalm that I'd like to read written by Asaph. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, we tend to look fulfillment in life. We tend to look elsewhere. And sometimes we seem to be surprised when we do not experience that fulfillment that God wants us to have. You know, an idol is anything that we think will bring us that ultimate happiness other than God himself. It seems that's our nature. We're inclined to or toward idolatry. And if you follow the Israelites' journey through the wilderness after they, after the exodus from Egypt, this seems to have been their downfall so many times. Some form of idol, some form of idolatry. And then even reading through the New Testament, especially in the, the Sermon on the Mount, this seems to be the key theme in Jesus' teaching for us, even today, was idolatry. You know, we try to impress people with an eloquent prayer. We tend to rely on our own ability. We tend to forgive others in hopes of getting something in exchange from them. We boast about our fasting. We count righteousness by how much money we give to the poor. We worry about things that only can come from God. And on and on. And even Paul warns us in Romans that worshiping the creature instead of the creator. Who's the creature? What does he mean by that? I'm a creature. You're a creature. We're all creatures. So we tend to worship ourselves instead of the God, the creator. So how do we live 
in this self-indulging, idolatrous world. I'd like to look at a kingdom lifestyle. What, according to scripture, what does that look like? I'd like to first of all look at a godly worldview. What does that mean? Or what is a worldview? Just in general, what is a worldview? Kind of a simple definition, I'm sure there's others, but it's a framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. I'll give you an example. A, uh, a typical two-year-old believes that the whole that, that he's the center of this world. The world revolves around that two-year-old. The sun rises and sets just for him. And that typical two-year-old, that's just an example of a two-year-old's worldview. But I'd like to look at a godly worldview. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We'll read a couple of verses here. And this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. And this is just that. It's, it's uh, my, the heading on the Bible says, a, an exhortation to holiness, which is uh, a, a godly worldview. Colossians 3 verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and I put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called, in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. <clears throat> okay, there's a lot that Paul points out here. He's saying a lot. But you notice it starts with an if, the word if. And of course that refers to the previous chapter and the, the, and the, the uh, writings that he has there. And he is, he is uh, like I said, exhorting us to a life of holiness. First of all, a godly worldview begins with this. Your primary reason for existence is to love and serve God. In a nutshell, that's 
basically what it starts with. Right there in verse 2, or verse 1 and 2, he brings that out. And then also in verse 17, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, certainly that's where it needs to start. Also, we live our lives in light of eternity or a life beyond this life. Looking back to verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, um, we are looking ahead to something beyond our life here on this earth. The next one, God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe. Again, these sound hopefully very basic and foundational to us, which they are, but this is where a godly worldview needs to start. God being the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe. The next one, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, and through him we too can be victorious. Look to verses 10 and 11 for that. Where they have, um, in, in now of course, this is in their setting, but he makes mention of the difference between the Greeks and the Jews, and there was a very distinct difference previously in, in their culture, where there was a very distinct line between those two groups of people. The one group, the Jews, were in many cases very privileged. The Greeks were suppressed and were sort of pushed back. That line is now gone, supposed to be gone. Even in our day, whether, whatever, you're, whatever, you, whatever you want to put in there, there is, like he says here, um, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is there for the Greeks to the Jews. He's there for all races and all people. The next one, Satan is real and is working diligently to corrupt the minds and to deceive people. <clears throat> See there in verse 5. Um, because of Jesus Christ's power in our life, we are now to put away those things and put on the things that he, that he brings out there in, in verse 10. And another one, salvation is a gift from God that cannot be earned. Looking down to verses 15 and 16. The, he, he speaks about the peace of God and the word of Christ. You know, these are very... Uh, key elements in having a maintaining a godly worldview. <clears throat> the next point: a godly worldview changes the way I relate to others. Turn with me to Romans chapter twelve. Read a few verses from that. Again, this is still Paul speaking to a different group of people, the Romans. Verses. I'm going to read verses nine through twenty-one. Romans 12. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend a man of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible. 
As much as life in you live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. A godly worldview changes the way I relate to others. And when we look at the beginning as reading, verses 9 and 10, love genuinely without faking it. That's what that word dissimilate means to dissimulate or dissimulation. It means just to, to put on a front or to fake, to, to be a fraud. Love genuinely. He also talks about, um, in verse 11, not soft, slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Can I serve the Lord at work? Can I serve the Lord with my business? Certainly, we, I'm sure we have opportunities. Talk this morning in Sunday school class about opportunities, maybe missed opportunities that may come to us from time to time. We look back and we see we may have missed an opportunity. Certainly, there are opportunities for that, even to those of us who work from a day-to-day basis. Brotherhood is sharing blessings and burdens, verses 13 to 16. That's something I think that um, we need a good balance of. Uh, Sometimes it's almost, maybe it's easier to share a person's burdens, but to actually rejoice with someone that really did have a good year or a good week or a good venture, that might not be quite as easy to do, especially if that person has kind of exceeded us in that way. What do you think? Is that, is it, is that uh, something that we deal with? It's something that I have, to, I have to work with. Sharing blessings and burdens. Um, I, think, I think here at Crystal Valley, we do well with sharing burdens. How do we do with sharing the joys and the blessings of another person? Then he goes on there in the, toward the end of the reading, speaking of treatment to our enemies. You know, as believers, we will have enemies. We do have enemies. Our world, our society is becoming increasingly hostile toward those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> those of you who follow the Christian Aid Ministries uh, Billboard Evangelism Ministry know that. Um, hearing Johnny Miller, who's one of the counselors on that ministry, he is very much convinced of that, and will give you example after example of that. Some of the some of the calls that that he would get, some of the questions that he is asked, are very hostile towards uh, the Christian faith, toward people who profess that, and I think that that's something that sooner or later we will all be faced with. As a believer in Jesus, we will have enemies. Certainly, um, Satan is working very hard, aggressively, over time, through his kingdom to to, uh, thwart this ministry, to thwart this work, and to convince 
people of his lies versus the truth. So Jesus, um, Jesus tells us many times, in, of course, in the Old Testament, and I'm sure that uh, Paul is quoting this. In fact, it even goes back beyond that. Verse 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That comes from a verse in Deuteronomy 32, way back in the Old Testament. God was speaking to his people. It says, to me, to me belongeth, it's God speaking, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. And then it goes on to elaborate more on that. This was the second generation of those who had um, come through the journey of the wilderness, didn't die in the wilderness, but had survived, and now they were taking this this uh, on into the new, into the promised land, and they were the ones who were now assigned with uh, conquering the land and being faithful in, in God's calling on their lives. So, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. <clears throat> Our responsibility is to obey God and leave results to Him. What does that coals of fire thing mean there in the end of verse 20? What does that, what does that mean? That's an interesting term. Um, there's some couple ideas, but uh, I like the one that came across. It might refer to the shame our enemies feel when we return good for evil. That's not a natural thing. We all know that. It's natural to lash out, to retaliate, to fight back. Jesus teaches to, to uh, the opposite of that, to uh, overcome evil with good. This is certainly um, as a godly worldview in relating to others. Third point, a godly worldview changes my perspective on this world's goods. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and this is again the same group of people that I referenced earlier. The younger generation that came out of the wilderness journey, and we're now uh, in the promised land, or about to take, about to enter, and Moses is rehearsing this whole thing to them that he had taught to their parents or their forefathers. And here we are in chapter 8. This is, again, God speaking to Moses or through Moses to the people. Deuteronomy 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And this whole chapter sort of relates to that. I don't think I'll take time to read all 20 verses, but let's start with the first six verses. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger, fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteth thee. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandment of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. And he goes on to describe that further. But when you read this, you see that 
it truly was God that led them, cared for them, and provided them through the wilderness. Their clothes didn't wear out. How many of you have a shirt or a coat that's 40 years old? That would have grown with you from childhood up. That's what happened here. Their shoes grew with them as well. Neither did they wear out. 40-year-old shoes? I don't know if I can even say that. That was their case. You can see God provided for them. They didn't have stores along the way like we do when we travel. It was God providing and caring for them. God fed them daily with this miraculous manna that literally fell out of the sky. Fed them with that. Led them with this either the cloud or this glow, I guess it was. It's called it a fiery pillar or a cloud of fire, you would say. Led them through the wilderness with that. But take a look at the conditions. Right here in the first couple of verses of this chapter. They were to obey and you'll live. Multiply and possess the land. Own the land. How would you like that? I wonder how many of you men ever dreamed of owning a vast tract of land. Like Yates County or whatever. I don't know how Yates County compares with them. I think it was a small portion, but that's what they had. Now, they were only given it in small portions as they conquered it, but that was what they were promised. But let's look at the conditions. Notice the word remember and forget not quite a few times. Remember or forget not. Just here in these couple of verses, verses 2 through 6. And even way back at the end of this chapter, um, where they were to um, remember, I didn't read that, but let's go back to the end and read those last couple verses. Verses 18 through 20. This is another remember. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do it all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them and worship them, I testify against thee this day that ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Doesn't that seem easy? Doesn't that seem like a simple request? Apparently not. Apparently not. Because God dealt with them very harshly and severely and justly over the years because of that very thing. They did not remember and forgot. They forgot God's work in their life. They forgot his provision. They forgot his care and protection. Took things in their own hands. Did things as they wanted. And forfeited their inheritance in many cases. Now God had a way over the years to bring them back. Again to like it says here to establish his covenant. 
as he swore to their forefathers. In spite of their forgetfulness, in spite of their unfaithfulness, God was faithful in his plan and bringing them to that, and God is still working that out in, in, uh, with his people. Remember and forget not. That's a very key theme in this chapter right here. And the last point, a godly world view gives me hope in Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is, of course, the birth announcement. We're going to look at the, the end of that chapter at an elderly gentleman, Simeon, who really had a, a, a very real and a vibrant hope in Jesus. Luke 2, verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. <clears throat> As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at the things which were spoken of him. This man, Simeon, has really, as I looked into this, really earned a deep respect for me. Let's take a look at this. To hope in Christ means to live righteously. Simeon lived according to God's standards. He was genuinely living a quiet and a consistent life of obedience before God, even when people weren't looking. It says he was devout. He was devout and reverent or careful. You know, a person doesn't just accidentally become righteous and devout. <clears throat> Simeon cultivated his life, his walk of life before God. He was living in a time when their leaders were very political, formal, and spiritually cold. And, he was, and even then, they were ruled by, a, by corrupt King Herod under the dominion of Rome. So their, their religious culture was not ideal, far from ideal. Their religious leaders had been largely driven by politics and peer pressure and the interest in looking good. Remember, there had not been a prophet from God for 400 plus years 
And yet, his faith remained strong. Amazing, when you think about the setting in which he lived and what he had going for him, he he must have felt pretty much alone many times, I can imagine. But he had a hope in Christ that gave him the power to live righteously. Notice also that the hope in Christ means to live expectantly. It says he was looking for or waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was expecting it. He was living for that. Takes us back to a verse in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, where I'm not going to read into that, but he was looking for that. How long was he looking or waiting? Probably his entire life. Very likely. You know, it would have been easy for him to think that the generations... Hundreds of years have come and gone, and yet these promises have not yet been fulfilled. Why expect that to happen in my lifetime? Why would he? Do you expect the Lord to return in your lifetime? Think about that. You know, today there are more signs than ever pointing to that soon return. Luke 18, verse 8. Will the Son of Man find faith in us when he comes? The hope in Christ means to live expectantly. The hope in Christ means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice the Holy Spirit mentioned several times. I think it's three times here. Verse 25. Um... The Holy Ghost was upon him there at the end of the verse. Verse 26, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. Verse 27, he came by the same Spirit into the temple. This man was very much influenced, controlled by, governed by the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is before Pentecost. That didn't happen for another... I don't know, what was it, 33 years later? That was way off in the distance yet. The Holy Spirit had not yet poured out, been poured out on believers. Yet here he was, living truly in the fullness of the Spirit. What does that mean to us? What does that mean to you? It it means you depend on the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. You ask him for insight in his word. I'm sure the Sunday school teachers do that all the time. Us pastors need that. We ask God for insight. You read a portion of scripture like this, what does that mean? What's it saying? The Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. You ask for a good attitude in the midst of trials. You seek for him in for wisdom during difficult decisions. And I'm hoping that that certainly is your experience. As you make a major decision, whether it's buying a house, a marriage partner, moving to another community or state, whatever, career change, job change, whatever, do you ask God for direction? The Holy Spirit will direct you, will give you that. Certainly, I, I, I can imagine many of you can testify to that.
as I could as well. There are times when a decision is before you, from my own experience, and you keep praying about it, wait a day or two, maybe more. Sometimes it's quite clear which way to go, which decision to make. The Holy Spirit does do that in our lives. To hope in Christ means to live in the power of the Spirit. And I'd like to read a couple of verses here, or a verse here in Romans 15, regarding this hope. 15, 13. Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Certainly, this was Simeon's experience. This was Simeon's life. He would have somehow given himself to God's work and God's will, and through that the Holy Spirit was able to, well, like it says here, uh, it, was, it was upon him, meaning it was, it was living within him, giving him direction, guidance daily. And it was revealed to him that this was the promised Messiah, right here. And it was by that same spirit that he came to the temple when the parents brought Jesus in. So you can again see that certainly <clears throat> this wasn't just, didn't just happen, but God directed these events and Simeon so that this could, this could, be, um, this could be done, so they could meet at that same time and place. So I'm, I'm thankful for, for um, God's direction that he gives us in his word through his Holy Spirit and may you find grace to live a kingdom lifestyle, a lifestyle that um, starts with a godly worldview, and hopefully that through that you can have that hope in Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we, uh, and I'll ask Ken for a song, and then I'll dismiss with a, with a prayer. Ken?